morning we're going to continue our sermon series called Horse Pills from Jesus. And if you think I've exaggerated about how difficult some of these passages are, well, you'll see exactly what we're talking about today. So grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 will be page 870 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 11, we'll read verses 37 through 54. It's a long passage. It's tough stuff, too. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered answered him, Teacher, in, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. Lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these these words are hard to hear. 
They're, they're difficult to teach. And they're difficult to receive and accept. Indeed, these are horse pills that are meant for our good. The good of our souls. But they are very difficult to swallow. So we need you. We need your spirit, your Holy Spirit to move right now. That we would receive your word. So that Satan would not deceive us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Book of Vacation with Marriott Bonvoy. This email appeared in my inbox at 12.37 a.m. this morning. I checked my email this morning. Less many of you think I was breaking the Sabbath by checking my email. I checked the email this morning because I made a note about an addition I wanted to make to my sermon notes. And I didn't want to forget it, so I emailed myself this morning. Isn't that pathetic? But as I checked my email this morning about a note I wanted to put in my sermon notes for today, I received this promotional email from Marriott Bonvoy that said this, Book a vacation with Marriott. Why? Because we have eight of the most Instagrammable hotels you could enjoy. I read that and I thought, do what? Is that really a marketing strategy today that Marriott has decided that one of the ways that they can get you to book a vacation with them is that they offer for you an opportunity to take a picture at some of the most social media worthy places in the world. I thought to myself, is that really what's happened to our nation and our culture? That I say, well, I want everyone to think highly of me because of this picture I take with my cell phone and where I am. Right? In other words, honey, delete that picture. It makes me look short. Right? Ignore the fact that I'm actually five foot four inches, regardless of what the picture looks like. You would say to me, Tanner, we love you, but you are short, right? We would say, well, Jennifer, don't, don't post that picture. It, it shows my double chin. Ignore the fact that I actually have a double chin. But I want to be more concerned about how I appear, how I look. Is that where we are as a culture? Is that where we are as a nation? Apparently so. If I shuck the corner a little bit close to home, is that where we are as a city of Bartow? I mean, after all, we are the city of champions. We never lose. We never show weakness. We never admit defeat. And I wonder if that desire to Look as if everything's proper and in place has seeped into the culture of the church. Even here at Bartow. I mean, after all, after all, we we are the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church of Bartow, Florida. We are the real Presbyterians of Bartow, aren't we? We get it all right. 
We don't get anything wrong ever. Do we? (laughs) If you're offended this morning by something I've said, I assure you it will probably get worse. Because the words that Jesus says in this passage only get worse. And the, the point, the central point in this passage is that Jesus is dealing with a group of Pharisees that the relationship with God hasn't gone deep enough. The problem is that the relationship with God looks great on the outside. The externals seem all in place and proper. But what Jesus' conversation and instruction to the Pharisee and the Pharisees and the lawyers in this passage reveal is that the relationship with God doesn't go deep enough. They are superficial saints. So take a look there at the context in verses 37 through 41. What happens is on the just the dovetails of Jesus preaching some very difficult horse pill sermons for them to swallow, Jesus has already told them that basically uh, the generation of, of, of Jonah and the generation in Solomon's time and, and the Queen of Sheba's time was better off than the generation that he's preaching to right now because that, those generations are going to rise up on Judgment Day and condemn the generation that Jesus is preaching to. And so this Pharisee is shocked by what Jesus has said. And and so the Pharisee in verse 37 invites Jesus to dine with him. It's an invitation to come to his house, to enjoy some fellowship with him. Obviously the Pharisee wanted to discuss some Bible and some theology with Jesus. But what happens as soon as Jesus gets there is in verse 38, the Pharisee is astonished by what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't wash his hands. Now, kids, if you're listening, this doesn't mean that you can't wash your hands before you eat supper or lunch today, okay? When your mommy and daddy tell you to wash your hands before you come to the dinner table, do that. Honor your father and mother. There's something else that Jesus is trying to teach in this passage. The point here is not hygiene, but the point is human tradition and wanting to be ceremonially clean. And so what happens in verse 39 is that Jesus responds to the Pharisee and he says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. What is Jesus saying? On the outside you look good, but on the inside you're derailed. And then Jesus goes on to say, You fools, which is a little bit offensive. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? What do you think the answer to that question is? Yes or no? Yes. And so the point of this passage, really the the hinge point of it all, is verse 41 that helps open up the key really to most of the passage. Jesus says, give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. What is Jesus saying? If you focus on the heart of the matter, which is a matter of the heart, then everything else will eventually resolve itself. What is Jesus saying to me and you today? He's asking us a question. 
that's a horse pill that's hard to swallow. Where's your heart today? Are you a superficial saint? Now, the way Jesus unpacks this passage is with six woes. Three woes are directed at the Pharisees in verses 42 through 44. And the other three woes are directed towards the scribes or the lawyers. Your translation may say one or the other, which were teachers of the law. Now, I want you to understand what this woe means. Okay? I joked with you earlier in the year, and I didn't want to be mistaken, that I joked on a Wednesday night that I love to preach angry during the summer. And then I got to this passage this week, and I thought, ooh, they may really think that's true of me. But this word woe really helps us understand not only what Jesus is saying, but the tone and the tenor in which Jesus says it. Now, don't get me wrong. This woe is a prophetic judgment of God. Jesus is coming in the great line of all the prophets that preceded him, but as the ultimate prophet to whom all the prophets pointed to. And Jesus pronounces judgment upon this generation. Don't ignore that fact. But the tone and the tenor in which Jesus pronounces judgment upon them is not with a diabolical, malicious, (laughs) as if he's gotten them. No, the tone and the tenor in which Jesus addresses the superficial nature of their faith is with grief and sorrow. And so as we organize our thoughts and as we unpack this passage today, I want us to take a look at these six woes and just kind of organize them under two points, okay? That there are two major mistakes that every superficial saint makes. There are two mistakes that every superficial saint makes. The first mistake is this, and we see it in verses 42 through 44, and actually prior to that. Superficial saints focus on looking religious. Superficial saints focus on looking religious. Notice it's with grief and pain that Jesus says this to the Pharisees. Verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. Don't get me wrong, that's a good thing that they tithe. Many of us in this sanctuary today could probably learn from their example. And their, their obedience has actually exceeded what the law required in tithing. They tithe on every little thing, every little herb that grew in their garden. They looked religious. Every Sunday they were in the, in the synagogue, they were tithing. But what was the problem? The heart of the matter, which is a matter of the heart. But they neglected justice and the love of God. Justice deals with our relationship with one another. The love of God dealt with a relationship with their Heavenly Father. See, superficial saints make a mistake of focusing on looking religious. Where's your focus? Notice what else he says in verse 43. 
Well, notice first what he says in verse 42. He, he doesn't neglect the fact that they should tithe. And notice what he says, these things you've also, you ought to have done. In other words, you should have tithed without neglecting the others. In other words, you should tithe, but you shouldn't tithe at the expense of your relationship with God or ignoring the fact that you love God. In other words, you shouldn't be focused on all these externals that you miss the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. And then he goes on to verse 43 and he says, and Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, Jesus says superficial saints always focus on looking religious. They loved being seen in the synagogue. In the synagogue, there were places of prominence and importance. Just like the pastor sitting up here, or an elder assisting in worship, or the choir director sitting up here, or the choir being up here. Don't be mistaken. If your heart begins to long more to be seen than to see Christ in this sanctuary. Superficial saints focus on looking religious Rather than focusing upon looking to Christ. Don't miss the play of words between verse 42 and verse 43. In the Greek, the same Greek word is used in verse 42 that's used in 43. It's the word agape, which usually deals with unconditional love. In other words, what Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees for is this. That they love their notoriety and their fame more than they love God. Why? Because their relationship with Jesus is superficial? It's shallow. And then he says this in verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Well, what's going on there? Jesus turns this whole conversation, what it means to be ceremonially unclean, upon the Pharisee that he's teaching at this moment. This Pharisee accused Jesus of being ceremonially unclean. In fact, the, the Jewish people would go and they would whitewash the graves. Do you know why they would whitewash the graves? So that a Jewish person would not step on a grave. Because according to Numbers chapter 19 verse 16. That if anyone ever touched a human bone or a grave. He would be unclean for seven days. And so not be allowed to go to the synagogue. Or go to the temple and worship. What's the point Jesus is making? You guys are deceptive in your teaching about me. Because people think that you're teaching them the truth about me. But actually you're leading them very far away from me. Wait, time out here. It just dawned on me. How many of you by a show of hands grew up in the church? Show of hands. Okay, keep them, keep them up. Look around. How many of you actually grew up in the church? Okay, that, okay you, you could lower them down. Okay, for those of you that didn't grow up in the church, let me catch you up to speed about where we are. Jesus is always the good guy. Okay, Jesus is always correct. Jesus is never wrong. Jesus is always true. He never lies. Okay, you've got caught up to speed. Now let me do some work with those of you that were grown that grew up in the church. For if you grew up in the church and you've heard sermons preached on the gospels, here's how we typically think about the Pharisees in the relationship to Jesus. We picture an old black and white Western movie, don't we? In the old Western movies, how did people dress? The good guys always dressed in 
the, yeah, white. The, the, the evil guys, the wicked guys always dressed in. The only exception was Zorro, right? So when we read the Gospels, this is typically what we think. Jesus isn't all white because Jesus is the good guy. The Pharisees must be in all black. Why? Because they're the bad guys. You're missing culturally and contextually what's happening when you think about it that simplistically. Here's what's so shocking and stunning and should be convicting about those of us that grew up in the church. The Pharisees? If you talk to the man on the street, they were the good guys. Do you know why? They were the Bible-believing, Bible-thumping fundamentalists of their day. And what's so shocking is that Jesus is telling the Pharisees, who are the Bible-believing, Bible-thumping fundamentalists of their day, you think you got it all right, guys. But there's a lot you're getting wrong. This is shocking to Jesus' disciples. In fact, it's so shocking because theologically, the Pharisees were the Jews that were the closest in the belief system of Jesus. Because there was a group called the Sadducees that did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees were the ones that actually believed in the resurrection. And so what's so shocking and stunning is that Jesus is preaching, correcting, convicting the Bible-believing, Bible-thumping fundamentalists of his day. <laughs> I was at a presbytery meeting one time. I was another presbytery. I transferred presbyteries. I got ordained in First Presbytery in the ARP Church. And a guy said at this other presbytery, he says, he looked at me, he goes, you got ordained in First Presbytery? I said, yes, sir. He goes, man, to get ordained in First Presbytery, you got to be a raging fundamentalist. I said, thank you. I resemble that. But isn't there this tendency, even in a Bible-believing church, that for all of our head knowledge, like the Pharisees, we still run the risk, we still run the danger of being more focused on looking religious rather than loving Jesus. Can I give you an example? One church where I served, I served under a pastor that he was very OCD. And I get that. I, I'm OCD about some things. In fact, he would always take Monday off and he always washed his car on Monday. And at that point, I took a lot better care of my vehicles than my lawn. Uh, than you've seen me in recent years. But I remember one week I missed washing my truck over the weekend. And it, rather than the pastor just kind of giving me a jab, I was the youth director, the associate pastor at the time. I remember him actually bringing me into his office and formally reprimanding me that I had not washed my vehicle over the weekend. I was like, well, that's new. I asked him, I said, well, why is this such a big deal to you? I mean, I, I like taking care of my vehicle as well, but why is this such a big deal to you? And he said, because you're a minister in training. You've got to look the part. It got worse. Not only did he mow his lawn better than I did, but he mowed his lawn in a three-piece suit. It was the talk of the town. 
I won't mention the name of the pastor. This is, not, this is no lie. I'm not exaggerating. This is true. He mowed his lawn in his three-piece suit that he would wear on Sunday morning. I asked him one time, why do you do that? He goes, because I don't want to look like a bum as the pastor of this church as I'm mowing my lawn. I thought, I can't afford a suit. I was like, don't you sweat? He's like, no worse than I normally sweat. But here's what happened in my, in my heart that I struggle with. And here's what happened with some of the people in that church. Whether he meant it or not, the unintended consequences that people began believing that he cared more about looking like a pastor than doing the work of a pastor. Friends, every good Bible-believing church and every good Bible-believing Christian will run the risk at some point of being more focused on looking religious rather than loving Jesus. Norval Geldenhus, who's a great scholar, says this simply. God is not satisfied with outward forms of religion. Church, we want to teach our kids not to run in the sanctuary. We really do. We want to teach them to respect this place, respect this house of worship. But we haven't gone far enough if all we've taught them is not to run in this sanctuary. Because you know what concerns me most? What concerns me most deeply as the pastor of this church is that when those kids become teenagers, I don't want them running away from Jesus. Or when they graduate high school and go off to college, I don't want them to run away from Jesus as far as they possibly can. Or if they move back to Bartow after they've gone to college and got a great education, if they're walking with Jesus, I don't want them to run away from this church. Why? Because we are a church that has taught our covenant children that what matters most is not looking religious, but loving Jesus. Why? Because we're not, we're not on the, the task and the business of raising up and discipling superficial saints. But rather, we want people who genuinely, genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ and have a genuine loving relationship with Him. That even in times when there are seasons that they're struggling in their faith and struggling in what they believe and struggling in their obedience... And the heart of the matter is a matter of their heart that deep down they are striving to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all of their strength. Isn't that what you want, Bartow ARP Church? That's what Jesus wants for this church. He wants this church, this sanctuary, filled with people. They're not superficial. They're not shallow. They're not just looking to the surface of, is he acting correct? Is he acting behaved? Does he act well behaved? Does the baby not cry in the service? But we want children that, when their hardest moments come, are crying out to their Savior. Isn't that what you want, church? That's what your Savior wants. He doesn't want superficial saints. He wants folks that are committed to him through the thick and the thin, through the good times and the bad times. When the culture is cheering them on, serve Jesus, and when the culture is booing against them. That's what Jesus wants. And that's what Jesus deserves. Are people that have a genuine knowledge of him, 
and love him. That's the first major mistake superficial saints make as they look religious rather than loving Jesus. The second major mistake they make is this. They preserve traditions. They focus on preserving traditions. I told you it was only going to get worse. Verses 45 through 52, here's what happens. Jesus pronounces three woes against the scribes and the lawyers. And notice what happens in verse 45. Jesus has been preaching, he's been preaching hard. And notice how the lawyer responds in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, a teacher? In saying these things, you insult us also, do you think? Well, at least he was listening, right? <laughs> but notice what happens in verses 45 through 52. Jesus rolls out three woes directed specifically at the lawyers, the scribes, the ones who are teaching the word. Notice what he says in verse 46. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. If you read the Mishnah, here's what the, the teachers describes the law did. As if the Ten Commandments weren't difficult enough to keep. Amen? If they weren't difficult enough to keep, they came up with 6,000 additional commands that were intended for a good purpose to try to keep the folks obedient in the relationship with God. But here's what happened. They became so overwhelmed by the burdens and demands that many of the folks gave up. Does that happen in the church today? As if the law of God's not difficult enough to keep. Do we make up traditions at our church that we're all about preserving them? And do we discourage those that are trying to actually walk with Jesus? There's a number of stories I could tell. I'll keep them to myself. Jesus critiques them. He calls them superficial teachers because they're more focused on preserving traditions rather than promoting Jesus. Now, I'm convinced that if you really want to get the nuts and the bolts of what Jesus is getting at, in verses 47 through 51, you actually have to hold your place and go back to chapter 9, verse 51. So hold your place and go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Something has significant has happened in Luke's presentation of the gospel. Something significant has happened in our Savior's psyche and focus that I don't want us to forget because we've been crawling through the Luke's gospel for a year and a half now, and I don't want us to miss it. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, talking about Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What does that mean? Jesus set his face towards the crucifixion. He set his face towards the cross. And I'm convinced that from that point forward in Luke's gospel, if you want to understand Jesus' teaching, his interactions, you've got to understand that there has been that flip of the switch in our Savior's mind. That at this point he said, okay, we're on the road to Jerusalem, we're on the way to suffering, we're on the way to the crucifixion. And so as Jesus is giving them these horse pills that they have to swallow, keep that in the background of your mind as you listen to what Jesus says. 
Jesus says to them in verses 47 and following, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. In other words, when the prophets of God came to preach the word, guess what happened? They had a very short lifespan. They were kind of like the, the Navy SEALs for God. Big, strong, but not expected to live long. Probably going to collect on their life insurance before they collect on their retirement. That's what it was like to be a prophet. And he says here in verse 48, So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. But Jesus says this, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, Well, let me time out, time out there. So in other words, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, Did you know what? You, you pretend as if you honor the prophets unlike your fathers did. But as you're seeking to preserve the history and the tradition of the prophets, what you're actually preserving is the fact that your fathers rejected the message of the prophets and killed the prophets. And so Jesus says to them, understanding his own ministry to them, verse 49, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And then he talks about the first murder in the Old Testament, the last murder in the Old Testament, verse 51. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. What is Jesus saying? Woe to you. I grieve. Because the preaching you've heard is far better than the preaching that Ninevites heard from Jonah. You've heard John the Baptist, who's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is Elijah. You've heard the preaching of the Messiah. You're going to hear the preaching of the apostles. And you know what our Lord and Savior Jesus knows? They're going to reject all of them. And the saddest part is the people who are the Bible-believing fundamentalists of the day that were, should have been in the best position to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ are actually the folks that argued with him, criticized him, rejected him, and ultimately, they killed him. Why? Because they were superficial. They were shallow. They were more concerned about preserving their own human tradition rather than promoting Jesus Christ. Sadly, the folks that were actually the most well-equipped in that day and age to actually preach the gospel, promote the Savior, promote Christ, are the ones that actually prevent people from seeing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And that's precisely what Jesus gets at in verse 52 when he says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. In other words, Jesus says, out of all the folks that I preach to, guys, you're the ones that should get it. You're the ones that should be doing what I'm going to do in Luke chapter 24 after I resurrect. That you should be saying, oh, well, no wonder. I get exactly what Jesus is saying. All the law, all the prophets, all the Psalms are testifying exactly about what he's doing. And they're testifying exactly about what he says he's going to do. And being crucified, being buried in the, in the ground for three days and resurrecting from the dead. Of course, I see what he's saying. But they reject Jesus. Why? Because they're shallow. They're more concerned about preserving their tradition. They're more concerned about preserving their history than they are about promoting Jesus Christ. Now, I'm so thankful that doesn't happen in the church today. 
Qualität. I wish we got as burdened about people walking away from the faith as we get bent out of shape when these two plants are not here on a Sunday morning. In our denomination, on paper, we're second to none because our doctrine is pure. But I wish we were as concerned about seeing the gospel spread as we are about keeping some of the plates spinning in the church and even at the denominational level. Alan Aver is the director of Outreach North America for our denomination currently. Here's a statistic he shared at General Synod this year. I want you to hear what he said. In order for this denomination to plateau, in other words, not to further decline, here's what we need. Do you hear what I just said? In order for our denomination to plateau, not further decline, here's what we need. We need seven and a half churches to organize each year. You know what that means? If planting a church is throwing fruit at the wall and hoping that it sticks, we need seven and a half pieces of fruit to stick per year. Are we more concerned about preserving history and tradition rather than we are promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a question we need to ask, and it's a question that we need to answer. Because if you love this church and you love this denomination, now's the time. Now's the time. It's a message that we good Bible-believing folks need to hear and need to receive. What excites you most, church? Do you get excited when we have someone baptized? Do you get excited when you see someone make a profession of faith? Do you get excited when you see a communicant child of this church that was baptized as an infant? come before you and profess faith in Christ after they've been through a communicants class. Does that excite you? It should. Because ironically, if you really want to preserve this church's history, and if you really want to preserve this church's tradition, do you know what you'll focus on? Promoting Jesus. You'll focus on promoting Jesus. Now here's what I've learned over the years of being a pastor. 
A drowning person can drown you while you try to save them from drowning. (laughs) It's true. And so Jesus comes to these Pharisees and he challenges them. And how do they respond? I hope you respond better than they did. There's actually a threefold response and it goes from bad to worse. Notice first how the Pharisee responds to Jesus in 38. It says, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So at first they're just amazed, like, well, I can't believe he did that. It gets worse. Verse 45, they get insulted. One of the lawyers answered him and said, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us. Okay, that gets a little bit worse. But then look at how they respond ultimately to Jesus in verse 53 through 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press hard. And provoke him to speak many things. How do they respond? In other words, they set themselves against him. And they're like, we're out to get him. He's insulted us. He's challenged us. He must die. And it says, literally in the Greek, in verse 54, they lie in wait to catch something that comes out of his mouth. In other words, they're lying, hiding behind the bushes, hiding behind the bushes, just waiting for one thing to come out of his mouth that they can grab hold on to and say, ha ha, we got you. How will you respond? This is a horse pill from Jesus. As he challenges good Bible-believing folk like you and me to take a look about whether or not Our hearts are really with him. J.C. Ross says this about this whole passage. Every Christian should come to the word of God with this question. Where's my heart? Church, where's your heart? Are you genuinely in love with Jesus? Where's your heart? Let's pray. Father God, I'm convicted and grieved. Because in this passage, I see my own sin. I can be so focused on trying to look the part of being a follower of Jesus. I can get so focused on trying to look the part of being a servant. That I miss the point. It's a loving, genuine relationship with Jesus. And Father, in trying to do your work and your business, God, I can get so derailed in my focus about the the petty things, the peripheral things, rather than the main thing. And you're clear about what the main thing is. It's Jesus. 
It's about knowing Jesus and making him known. So, Father, my prayer and plea is that no one would leave this sanctuary today without knowing you. Or to say it positively, Lord, my prayer is that everyone would leave here today not only knowing about you, but accepting you and loving you and trusting you. So we leave here today knowing that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Amen. Let's respond to our, our word of God today.